Just this morning, Tuesday, September the 13th, I get a Facebook message from one of our podcast family listeners, Lori in New Mexico. Lori's question was great, but it wasn't the content of the question. It's what happened last week and what happened to me this morning in clinic that really makes me go, wait a minute, what is happening? So check this out. Last week, before Lori sends me the Facebook message, I get a Facebook message from another listener saying, um, hey, can you do a podcast on bioidentical hormones? Because I'm getting a lot of requests to do panhormone testing. In other words, vast or broad hormone testing in women who are otherwise healthy and just want to know what their hormones are. And they're asking about bioidentical hormones. Okay, fine. Well, this morning, Lori hits me with almost the exact same question. And I give her a response. But then I go to clinic. And listen to how wild this is. I mean, I can't, it's like one of those things you can't explain. I had a young patient come in. I mean, she's in a professional school at our university, uh, regular periods, feels fine, no health issues, but she brings me her estradiol level that was done at an outside facility. And she's concerned because her estradiol level was peak high. All right. Now, keep in mind that she's not on birth control pills. Um, This was done around the time of mid-cycle, just slightly into the luteal phase. Um, And so she was all concerned because they really freaked her out because they did this whole hormone panel. Remember, young reproductive age, normal periods, no other complaints, normal sexual well-being. Why are we looking for that? So I thought, wait a minute, something is happening here because I've gotten two Facebook messages uh, and both saying that they're getting a lot of questions about bioidentical hormones. And then I saw this young professional student who was really very, very concerned that something was definitely wrong. Um, Now, of course, now I'm committed, right? I mean, she's got a high estradiol level. And even though we walked her down from the fear factor and told her that it's most likely just a normal part of her menstrual cycle, it did compel me to order that pelvic ultrasound because I had to make sure now that she didn't have some granulosa cell tumor, as unlikely as that would be, because she was asymptomatic, no change in abdominal girth, no pelvic pain, and we can go down the list of negatives. But in ethical conservatism, I had to check the ovaries, knowing, of course, that it was one value and not yet repeated, which I ordered as well. So I thought in this episode, let's hit it hard. Let's cover the data. And if you write for bioidentical hormones, I got no problem with you, but you're probably not going to like what's coming in this episode. So we're going to cover a lot of data, but it's going to be quick and targeted. And I'm going to cover sources that are very credible. All right. So we're going to cover information from the North American Menopause Society. That's NAMS. We're also going to cover data from a new position statement that was out just in 2020 from the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine who talk about this. We're also going to talk about ASRM, the college, and we're going to wrap it all up because it all comes together in one other society, which is the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. Yeah, that's its own society. So we're going to cover all of that here and knock it out right now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date in practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Oh my goodness, before I get into the data, I gotta tell you one more thing about my patient from this morning. This poor patient who was so anxiety-ridden from the labs that they had gotten, again, without a clear indication, that she was really at wit's end. But that provider at that other location also ordered a serum progesterone. Now remember, we talked about her high estradiol, but they also ordered progesterone. Now, there's no issue here. She's not trying to get pregnant. There's no concern for luteal phase deficiency. There's no history of recurrent miscarriage. So why would you order a serum progesterone? Why would you order a serum estradiol at the same time? So clearly, there's not an understanding of how the menstrual cycle works. Everybody good? Because your estradiol rises first and then drops, and then in the luteal phase, your progesterone rises. So this poor patient was all freaked out because she had high estrogen and low progesterone, but nobody had explained to her that that's called a normal menstrual cycle. The only time when progesterone and estrogen in the form of estriol exist together at high levels is in pregnancy. So again, you see how ordering a a lab that's not indicated can really cause confusion and anxiety in a patient when there was no indication to draw her serum progesterone. Well, there wasn't an indication to draw her estrogen to begin with, but her progesterone, really? Oh, and if you're wondering, hmm, I wonder if they threw in total testosterone in there as well. Remember, no sexual complaints, no altered mood. She was doing very well with regular cycles. Well, yeah, they threw in total testosterone too, which was normal. Now, we're going to get into total testosterone testing and when it's indicated a little bit further on in this podcast. And there is a time to check total serum testosterone because it's important when used correctly. But including that as part of a pan-hormone panel is just not right. Okay, now back to the podcast. Let's start off first tackling the issue of pan or broad hormone sampling. No professional organization from ACOG, ASRM, NAMS, or the International Society for Sexual Health, none endorse pan hormone testing for anybody. Rather, it's endorsed to do specific hormone testing when indicated. For example, if there is a patient under the age of 40 who has stopped having cycles with or without hot flashes or with or without vaginal dryness, and you're concerned about premature ovarian insufficiency, formerly called premature ovarian failure, then you've got to check an FSH and an estradiol, especially if they fail to have a progestin withdrawal bleed. But notice that's targeted hormone therapy, FSH, and estradiol to make the diagnosis, not pan-hormone testing. Similarly, in patients who present with lack of a cycle and nipple discharge, then consider TSH and prolactin testing. You've got to be focused in what you're looking for. By the way, in another podcast, we're going to tackle the new terminology for ovulatory dysfunction, right? Hypothalamic, pituitary, ovarian, and then PCOS, or the hyponomenclature that my great friend and mentor, Mac Monroe, put out just last month. But that's for another topic. 
But for right now, the whole issue of targeted testing for hormones is completely endorsed. But panhormone testing is not a thing, even for things like female sexual dysfunction, which we're going to touch on in this session, requires targeted testing. Is there suspicion of thyroid abnormality? Is there suspicion of some other endocrine issues such as diabetes? Those are factors that can be assessed. But to just order carte blanche, a bunch of labs, you're going to get results that you don't know what to do with. So targeted testing is endorsed and no professional society wants pan testing. I got to start off right off the bat clearing up some confusion about bioidentical hormones because that term is kind of being misused and abused and it's causing confusion. Look, there are two types of bioidentical hormones, all right? Those that are FDA approved and that we've tested and then non-FDA approved, traditionally known as compounded. Okay, so we are all familiar with bioidentical, like 17 beta estradiol, micronized progesterone. I mean, I'm not against bioidenticals. I write for micronized progesterone, and we've talked about that in, in things like um, for the OB applications and the high risk pregnancies. That's micronized progesterone. Guys, that's bioidentical. But those are the ones that have been tested and are FDA approved. All right. So the term bioidentical hormones, and remember, bioidentical just means endogenous or similar to endogenous forms like 17-beta estradiol or micronized progesterone. It's very misleading because companies that aren't FDA approved use that term, and this is where the water gets very muddied. Oh, and I'm a big fan of 17-beta estradiol when it's FDA approved. I think it's a great medication, just like micronized progesterone. When used correctly, they're fantastic. The purpose of this podcast is not to kind of shed doubt on that, but to clear up confusion on the use of compounded bioidenticals. See how crazy it gets? Compounded bioidenticals are not the ones that are FDA approved and are ones typically used for off-label unproven claims. And we'll talk about those in a minute. But chiefly, that has to do with things like testosterone supplementation and this whole pellet gone crazy concept that we're about to tackle here in just a minute. Really over the last two decades, and really as a result of a lot of social media influencers and celebrities, which by the way, please don't get your medical advice from celebrities unless they are board certified and evidence-based. Anyway, both patients and physicians have been lured away to this, quote, custom formulated, end quote, or compounded medications as an alternative to FDA approved medications. These are often marketed as being more natural or bioidentical. Again, we've already tackled that term and safer than the FDA approved variety. But there's just no data that proves that that statement is accurate. The difference between compounding and the FDA-approved variety is very well summarized in the recently released North American Menopause Society position statement on hormone therapy. This just came out earlier in 2022. The journal is Menopause, and you can find it there. In that position statement, NAM states, quote, compounded bioidentical hormones can either include a single agent, typically some form of androgen, or a combination of hormones, including estradiol, estrone, estriol, DHEA, testosterone, or even progesterone. And, quote, they use untested, unapproved combinations of formulations that are administered in non-standard or untested routes, such as subdermal implants, 
pellets or trochees, end quote. And that sentiment is not just coming from NAMS. The global consensus on the use of testosterone in women, endorsed by multiple international societies, is clear that the use of pellet therapy does not represent an appropriate form of care. Too often, testosterone, generally as these implants or pellets, is being marketed as this fountain of youth or fountain of sexual strength, weight loss, or even increased energy. But in fact, none of these represent true indications for prescribing testosterone and supraphysiologic dosing is required to even get near those results. These effects frequently wear off over time, leading to dose increases and more side effects. It's also important to remember that this is not a harmless natural hormone or a natural supplement. This is an anabolic steroid that must be used with caution. Side effects like acne or hair growth can be seen even with physiologic doses of testosterone, and that's why when it's clinically appropriate to use, and we'll discuss that, it should be for the shortest amount of time and at the lowest dose possible. At supraphysiological levels, there are alterations in lipid profiles and increased weight gain, and there's also some effect on mood. These types of compounded bioidentical hormone therapies have been prescribed or dosed on the basis of serum, salivary, or urine hormone testing. However, NAMS is very clear on this and reminds us that the use of this testing to guide hormone therapy dosing is considered unreliable and not evidence-based. And that's because of differences in hormone pharmacokinetics and absorption, diurnal variations, and intra-individual and even intra-individual variability. Now, before we leave that NAMS 2022 position statement, let me leave you with this powerful quote as it regards to compounded bioidentical hormones. Quote, there is a dearth of safety and efficacy data with little or no high quality pharmacokinetic data to provide evidence of safety and efficacy of compounded bioidentical hormone therapy. And there's insufficient evidence to support overall clinical use. End quote. That, along with some potential safety concerns, should raise a lot of flags. Again, this has nothing to do with the FDA-approved bioidentical options. I'm talking about the risks and the lack of safety data with compounded bioidenticals. By the way, I am not trying to throw compounding pharmacies under the bus, no matter how it sounds. I'm just trying to be true to the data. But this also applies, this safety issue, to over-the-counter products that are available without a prescription. You can just walk up to any shelf and get, especially at some um, health stores like progesterone creams. Yep, in December of 2021, there was a big health advisory that some of those creams can actually lead to real dangerous conditions long-term. Progesterone cream transdermally is not in any way, shape, or form, an FDA-approved route of therapy, and it's not endorsed by any professional society. So progesterone can be used oral, it can be used IM, it can be used vaginal, but try to stay away from lotions or gels on the skin for progesterone because that's just not evidence-based. Oh, I can read your mind already. I know some are thinking, what do I care what the North American menopause society thinks? I mean, that's for women in menopause. I use compounded bioidenticals in reproductive age women. All right, well, let's tackle that next because other societies have something to say there as well. 
Actually, in 2020, the National Academy of Sciences called the widespread availability of non-marketed and non-FDA-tested bioidentical hormones as, quote, a real public health concern, end quote. This monograph can be found free online, and it's called The Clinical Utility of Compounded Bioidentical Hormone Therapy, a review of safety, effectiveness, and use. And again, that's out of the National Academy of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, released in 2020. Oh, and FYI, that monograph is a whopping 337 pages long. And yes, I did review all of that for this podcast. Well, what's in over those 300 pages? Well, let's just summarize that in a couple of seconds. Quote, the committee concluded that there's insufficient evidence to support the clinical utility of compounding bioidentical hormone therapy. Based on the review of the evidence to address public health concerns, this committee recommends the restricted use of compounded bioidentical hormone therapy, end quote. Now, in all disclosure, that same monograph does provide a very unique scenario of when a provider should actually or can consider the use of a non-FDA-approved compounded bioidentical option. All right, so there is one time we can go, man, maybe we need to call that compounding pharmacy. And that's when the patient reports a true medical allergy to one of the FDA-approved medical options. So in other words, we can't just throw out everything completely. Nope, I'm never going to use a compounded option because, you know, there's a caveat to everything. But it shouldn't be our first go-to. So in those patients who do report a true medical allergy to a truly FDA-studied and approved medication, in those patients, then offering a compounded option or a compounded alternative may be acceptable. For the remainder of the podcast, we have to talk about the most common compounded bioidentical hormone used in women. And that, of course, is testosterone or testosterone-like products. And for this, we're going to cover the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health and their clinical practice guideline that just came out in December of 2021. That's not long ago. That's less than a year ago. The complete title of this monograph that's out in their journal Climacteric is... Quote, International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health Clinical Practice Guideline for the Use of Systemic Testosterone for Hypoactive Sexual Desire Disorder in Women. Testosterone is an important female hormone with activity in all body systems, but especially in the brain and the genital area. Now, this steroid, of course, has been poorly misunderstood because although you can test it adequately in men, female levels that tend to be lower can be not so reliable because some tests can't pick up lower levels that are actually quite normal in women. It's also a misnomer and misleading to check for free testosterone when it's indicated, the test for total testosterone is much more helpful. Now remember, if you are going to check testosterone when it's indicated, total testosterone is fine, but there's no real benchmark of free testosterone because there's a lot of lab-to-lab error. There's another common assumption that there's a sudden drop of testosterone when menses occurs with menopause. But the truth is there's a gradual decline in testosterone levels throughout a person's life, regardless of sex. And there is no increase in the rate of this decline at menopause. And testosterone and precursors continue to be made from ovaries and adrenals 
even in menopause. Both the global consensus for testosterone use in women and the International Society for Women's Sexual Health state that routine testing for testosterone levels in women is not diagnostic and should not be used. It should only be used to establish a baseline and ensure that a woman isn't already in a normal physiological state. And it can also be used for treatment monitoring. In other words, making sure that she's not going supra-therapeutic when she is given appropriate testosterone treatment that's FDA approved. The North American Menopause Society, remember that's NAMS, agrees and notes that hormone testing in general has very limited use in menopause and that's usually employed only to evaluate whether there's poor absorption of the medication if symptoms are not being relieved with exogenous FDA-approved hormone therapy. Now, we've got to talk about testosterone supplementation with decreased libido because that's clearly the number one reason why women show up asking for compounded testosterone pellets because they want to improve their libido. But decreased libido or desire can be seen in women throughout their reproductive lives and is a response to any number of complex stimuli, including psychological, psychosocial, relationship, and physical health states. Reduced libido becomes more common as women age, with a prevalence of 11% in women age 20 to 29 and 53% in women age 60 to 70 years, according to one European study. However, hypoactive sexual desire disorder is a little different because that is marked by that decrease in desire also with accompanying distress. And this, of course, still is not caused by other factors that are physical, psychological, or relational. And this diagnosis is actually stable across ages. All right, everybody get that clinical pearl? There's a difference just with, meh, I'm not kind of in the mood, but I'm okay with that. That's natural decrease in libido and the true diagnosis of hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which is stable across ages. Nonetheless, any woman who presents with decrease in desire needs to have a genuine and thorough evaluation and a discussion of sexual pain, psychological stressors, body image changes, and relationship factors so you can get to the right diagnosis. All of these things should precede the prescribing of testosterone to treat a drop in desire. That's a good lead-in to discuss when testosterone therapy can actually be considered using an FDA-approved medication. Testosterone does have a role in treating postmenopausal women with hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and studies have shown improvement in symptoms on the order of an increase of two or more sexually satisfying events per month with the use of testosterone in physiologic ranges over an interval of up to 24 weeks. And this increase holds for naturally and surgically postmenopausal women. Testosterone therapy in the U.S. generally uses an FDA-approved male product, but at one-tenth of standard male dosing. Study doses in women have used 300 to 500 micrograms daily, whereas male-dosed products deliver 5 milligrams per dose. 
Now, that's fine in menopause, but what about in the premenopausal age range? Well, there is some data for the use of testosterone in late reproductive age women as well. Remember, we said late reproductive age. We're not talking about women in their 20s and 30s, all right? This is late 40s going into early 50s. However, the International Society of Sexual Health for Women guidelines notes that more research is needed in that population. And if it is going to be used in that perimenopausal interval, remember, lowest dose and the shortest duration possible is a good rule to stick by. As we wrap this up, remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about true medical indications for testosterone supplementation using an FDA-approved agent. Postmenopausal women with hypoactive sexual desire disorders, number one. Second, potentially with mixed data, is the late reproductive age woman, again, with hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And then the third group are those women premenopausally who undergo bilateral sapingo oophorectomy. They do have a precipitous drop not only of estradiol, but of testosterone. And while estrogen is always considered the add-back hormone or the hormone to replace in those women, Don't forget about testosterone, especially in those that are symptomatic, but it must be done at the lowest dose and the shortest duration possible. As we come to the end of this rather long-winded podcast, I want to close with an important statement in a current commentary that was released in Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Green Journal. This was out in November 2021, and the title of that current commentary is Testosterone Therapy in Women, a Clinical Challenge. The authors close their discussion with this important statement. Quote, women deserve comprehensive, evidence-based sexual health care. Female-dosed, FDA-approved androgens should be available with limits placed on unregulated products, especially implants. End quote. So I tried my best to reassure my very anxious patient that she was most likely absolutely normal, especially since she had regular cycles and no other complaints. And she ended up causing herself more stress looking for a pan-hormone assay that she really didn't need. Nonetheless, we did commit to rechecking the level in the next four to six weeks at the start of her cycle when estradiol should be low. And just to be safe, we ordered a pelvic ultrasound to check those ovaries. It's a great time to shout out to our great NP, Jenna Grace, who first evaluated this patient and said, "Um, I think we need a team approach here. Uh, And it was the right call. So Jenna, good going. Well, as always, we hope you found this podcast helpful. Thanks for your suggestions on podcast topics. We do our due diligence. We pour over the data to try to come up with a good program. And as always, we're thankful for you. So we'll see you next time on another episode of Clinical Pearls. Thank you.